North Untapped is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. Hi listeners, it's Alex here. For this week's episode, we're trying something slightly different. Instead of our regular interview format, I'll be reading out one of our recent articles that our subscribers particularly enjoyed. We'd love to know what you think about this kind of episode and whether you'd like to hear similar episodes in the future. You can let us know what you think by emailing us at hello at readthemaple.com. We get a lot of emails, so we're not able to respond to each one, but I do read everything you send. This week, I'll be reading an article from our Great Gilded North series, written by Mitchell Thompson, titled Poverty Wage Plutocrats, A Guide to Canada's Grocery Chain Oligarchs. This piece was first published on March 11th, 2022. We hope you enjoy it. For workers, the grocery sector means low wages, insecurity and constant employer surveillance. For Canada's wealthiest plutocrats, these same conditions make the grocery business one of the most lucrative. In the pandemic's first year, as many workers struggled to make ends meet, top Canadian executive pay rose an average of 17%. Canada's billionaires also added an extra $78 billion to their wealth. On this documenting the rising fortunes of executives and billionaires, Grocery magnates like Galen Weston Jr. and Jim Patterson feature prominently. Those same executives were the first to claw back their workers' pandemic bonus pay. This wasn't a one-off. These top grocery magnates have made it astonishingly clear for decades that their profits are the unpaid wages of the employees on the shop floor, taken from the value those workers generate. For the executives, wage cuts mean more money for bonuses and dividends. In June 2020, George Weston Limited's CEO, Galen Weston Jr., told his workers at Loblaws, No Frills and other Weston companies they were due for a pay cut. The CEO promised workers that the company's stores were operating safely and effectively in a new normal, eliminating any justification for maintaining their $2 pay increase. Lest he seem cold, the billionaire from Canada's third wealthiest family ended his letter with an assurance. Your safety and the well-being of our colleagues remain our top priority. Be well. Since then, the Weston family has increased its wealth by over $4 billion. Profits for the Westons have long gone hand-in-hand with poverty wages. In 1882, George Weston founded a bakery in Toronto. Within a few years, he acquired mechanical mixers and renamed the bakery G. Weston's Bread Factory. In 1869, the Toronto Star observed that Weston's factory produced up to 6,500 loaves per day, with mixing stations fitted with the latest labour-saving machines and operated by men, women, girls and boys. In 1905, when Weston's workers went on strike against gruelling overwork and low pay, he fired them, remarking, I never saw so many men willing to step in and fill the vacant places. George Weston died in 1924, passing his fortune to his son, W. Garfield Weston, who celebrated his inheritance with a buying spree in the early days of the Great Depression. Within a short period, he had a virtual monopoly over the UK biscuit industry, a huge number of foreign factories and controlling shares in Toronto's Loblaws grocery chain. In sectors traditionally marked by modest returns, the company's massive size ensured steady profits through the post-Second World War economic boom. Facing a slowdown, Galen Weston took over in 1969 to initiate, according to the Globe, a massive restructuring, notable for ruthless cutting of assets and personnel. 
The ruthless cost-cutting proved lucrative. In 1988, Weston was named one of the world's wealthiest men. Explaining the company's strategy for improving its profitability the same year, Loblaw president Richard Curry said the grocery giant had initiated bottom-line cost reductions after a period in which weak management had provided, quote, fertile opportunities for labor unions. This strategy would continue for several years. Ahead of 1994 union contract negotiations, Curry remarked, We're looking to lower our labour costs relative to sales. Under Galen's son, Galen Weston Jr., little has changed. In 2018, Loblaw's executives rejected a resolution to pay its workers the income necessary to support families so the company could maintain, quote, competitive flexibility. Since the 1990s, George Weston Limited's successive annual reports have indicated returns on investments far above the Toronto Stock Exchange average, but it has fought its workers every step of the way to block pay and benefit increases. In the first weeks of June 2020, the owners of Sobeys joined the Weston Company in cutting its workers' pandemic bonus pay, later partially reinstating it, and then cutting it again. Meanwhile, from May 2020 to 2021, Empire, Sobeys' parent company, saw net earnings rise 6.7% per share. Defending the first hero pay cut, Empire CEO Michael Medline told a parliamentary committee in July 2020 that management did all it could to support its low-wage workers, from philanthropy to a food bank drive. While claiming it is a misconception that all grocery employees earn minimum wage, Medline admitted, I'm not saying that retail is the highest paying industry. Starting out as a meat distributor in Stellarton, Nova Scotia in 1907, founder Frank Sobey incorporated Sobey's Store Limited in 1946. Empire, its adjacent investment company, was set up soon after. For decades, Sobey's described itself as a family-based non-union store. In the 1950s, Sobey solidified his disregard for workers as a Dominion Steel and Coal Corporation shareholder and board member, where he oversaw 90% of Nova Scotia's notoriously dangerous coal mines. On January 14, 1952, a fire erupted in the McGregor Mine in Stellarton, resulting in an explosion. Sobey left the Isle Royale Hotel to survey the bodies. These men just died in a flash, he recalled. Their tongues were out and swollen, and their hair was all burnt off their eyebrows and heads. Decades later, Sobey still insisted that the miners seemed to feel it was a fine mine to work in. Back on the grocery side of Sobey's empire, labor organizer Leo McKay unionized warehouse workers in Trenton in the 1960s. When presented with a contract, Frank Sobey flatly refused to sign it. He told the employees they could strike if they wanted to, as a matter of free choice, but that if they did, he'd just go around them. He wouldn't use the warehouse. He could still deliver by truck to all his stores. In 1981, Sobey's workers in Dalhousie walked out in the face of management's point-blank refusal to improve their contract terms. One worker recalled, They thought it was quite funny that we would try to organise, and they tried to break us, and we wouldn't. We were very strong. Sobeys responded by closing down the store, with management remarking, it is not a viable operation. The company's opposition to workers and unions intensified through the 1990s. A company document titled The Definition of Competitive and quoted by this magazine detailed Sobeys' position with remarkable clarity. Quote, we will never allow a competitor or organization to dictate our terms and conditions of employment in any component of our organization. This would be irresponsible and would place us on the road to becoming non-competitive in an industry which must keep costs down and efficiency up. 
In 2013, 400 Sobeys warehouse workers went on strike in Milton, Ontario against the company's decision to massively shift full-time work to part-time. Around that time, the Halifax Chronicle Herald reported that Sobeys decided to manage rising labour costs by automating warehouse jobs. Explaining the decision, Distribution VP Eric Seguin remarked, Robots don't get tired. These dynamics at Empire have kept wages low and profits high. Grocery giant Metro has also reported hefty pandemic profits after cutting its workers' $2 pandemic wage increase. Metro Incorporated started in 1947 in Verdun, Quebec. It opened its first supermarkets in 1972 and went public on the Montreal Stock Exchange in 1986. It too has a long anti-union history. In September 1984, management directed 300 grocery stores to arrange stock shipments from independent suppliers after locking out more than 400 truck drivers and warehouse workers. After the union backed down, Gerald Tremblay, the vice president, told Montreal Gazette, now we can have efficient and flexible operations. In 1990, when Pierre Lessard took over as CEO, his tenure promised the business community new rounds of, quote, massive job cuts, at the same time as the company's annual sales rose to $2.3 billion, the Globe observed. More recently, when Ontario looked poised to increase its minimum wage to $15 per hour, current CEO Eric Lafleche told a conference call in 2017 that the increase would cost about 8% of the company's net earnings, which totaled $586 million. Rather than accept a lower profit margin, Lafleche promised, As a team, we will strive to mitigate this impact as much as we possibly can through productivity and cost reduction initiatives. But the size and pace of these increases pose a significant challenge. Notably, he refused to rule out additional job layoffs when asked. We're looking today at opportunities like we've never had before, declared billionaire Jim Patterson three months after he cut Save on Foods employees' pandemic bonus pay. We've never been in better shape to invest. Patterson increased his own wealth by $1.7 billion from March to September 2020. Patterson started out as a sales manager for General Motors. There, according to his autobiography, he boosted the dealership's sales by firing people. You sold the fewest cars, you were gone, he recalled. The fifth or sixth best salesman might be fired because his general attitude was bad, or he was starting to arrive late. It didn't matter if his sales were good, bad, or indifferent. After managing car salesmen, Patterson linked up with a number of mostly American investment gurus, famously Charles Engelhard of Engelhard Incorporated, to take over Neon Products Limited. Engelhard, having made his fortune from Latin American and apartheid South African metals, was keen to use Patterson to gain a Canadian foothold. In late 1968, Neonex, as Neon Products was renamed, purchased Overweighty, a regional supermarket chain founded in New Westminster, B.C. in 1915. Under the direction of Clarence Heppel, the two companies had a combined workforce of 4,500 people by 1986 and megastores staffed by, quote, large numbers of part-time and non-union workers. In 1993, the Calgary Herald published an article on Patterson's Save on Foods chain titled Wage Cuts Key to Save on Growth. Management insisted that its 1,500 employees in four Edmonton stores and a Lethbridge store accept a series of wage cuts, mirroring those secured by rival Safeway, or lose their jobs. In June 1996, workers who were unionised with UFCW at Overweighty, Safeway and Save on Foods were locked out province-wide so management could secure an agreement that would pay new hires $8 per hour instead of the $10 to $21 per hour regular rate. 
Asked about the cut, overweighty food group president Brian Puick told the BC Report his company, quote, can no longer keep the promises we could keep in the 70s and 80s, whereby people coming in as clerks could work their way up to high-paying managerial jobs. Over the following decades, the last overweighty stores were closed and converted into save-on-foods locations. Restraint, however, persists. In the mid-1950s, McLean's called Dominion Groceries head J. William Horsey the Barnum of the supermarkets. After surviving internal crises during the 1930s, Dominion re-emerged in the following decade as a division of the Angus Corporation, oligarch E.P. Taylor's vast post-war empire of Massey Harris, Hollinger Mines, Orange Crush and more. Bankrolled by Argus, Horsey was described by Maclean's as the grocery world's most formidable figure, with massive stores, glitz and a jingle. It's mainly because of the meat. By the 1970s, however, Angus was under the management of business tycoon and right-wing newspaper publisher Conrad Black. The uncompetitiveness of Dominion stores was becoming chronic, Black wrote in his 1993 autobiography titled A Life in Progress. Intimidated in particular by newer, thinly manned and high-volume stores, Black lamented that his workers were too well paid. How are we to compete with this, with smaller stores feather-bedded by clock watchers paid $40,000 per year for stacking bags of frozen peas? Dominion's sale was protracted, according to Black, only because the workers in the stores might be owed back pay, meaning the very wage cost structure that contributed importantly, in addition to the company's general incompetence, to the store's closing would be more than doubled. After AMP in Toronto bought 115 Dominion stores, Weston purchased all that remained of the former Dominion stores for $40 million. Aside from having requested that store managers protect their most deserving employees, Black lamented that no other job protection was possible. Solomonic wisdom would be required to distinguish the deserving from the undeserving, the honest majority from the gluttonous pilferers, he wrote. That said, Black did have a special contempt for some of his workers. I recommend that a scythe be taken through the ranks of the lowlives at the warehouse, he said. Ultimately, Black is the most crass and blunt of the oligarchs. But in all cases, the practices of Canada's massive grocery store owners confirms that the value they live off comes from the work of their employees. Keeping wages low is the flip side to keeping profits and bonuses high. That piece was originally written by Mitchell Thompson. Mitchell is a writer with Press Progress, an occasional radio producer, and a researcher based in Toronto. You can find him on Twitter at Thompsonian underscore M. North Untapped is a podcast brought to you by The Maple. To support our work, go to readthemaple.com and hit subscribe. Thank you for your support.